Please turn to uh, Psalm 15. We're going to study from there tonight. Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? He whose walk is blameless and who does what is righteous, who speaks the truth from his heart and has no slander on his tongue, who does his neighbor no wrong and casts no slur on his fellow man, who despises a vile man but honors those who fear the Lord, who keeps his oath even when it hurts, who lends his money without usury and does not accept the bribe against the innocent. He who does these things will never be shaken. May God bless the reading and preaching of his word tonight. If we decided to take a trip together and we decided we were going to go to the moon, we would have to travel a distance of more than 238,000 miles. If we decided to go to Mars, the distance would be a little longer, 34.8 million miles. Saturn, which is a place I always wanted to see, 746 million miles. And the nearest star, at least some scientists seem to think this is the nearest star, Proxima Centauri. Uh, to know the distance there, write down the number 59 and then 15 zeros after it. That's how many miles our trip would be. And if we traveled the, the diameter of the Milky Way galaxy, we would travel a distance of 100,000 to 120,000 light years. Maybe Mitch can tell us about the size of a light year. We sure need a lot of snacks and drinks, wouldn't we? One website dedicated to the Milky Way offers, and this is a quote, a full-size view of the Milky Way galaxy. And I just couldn't help but think, wow, that must be some computer to be able to get a full-size view. Those are just tremendous different distances, aren't they? Those distances are so great that they're hard for us to really get in mind what they are. And yet there are still even greater distances that we could measure in the universe. But there is a distance in the universe that is greater than all of those combined, that is greater than any other distance, and it's one that every one of us experiences, every one of us travels. And that distance is the distance between what we are and who we are and what God wants us to be. Even at our best, even on our best day, God wants us to be more than we are. We might feel great discouragement about that because we'll never close that gap. We will always have more growing to do. But what keeps us from being discouraged and just giving up is how much God has already done for us and how far along he has brought us and how much more he will do to help us get uh, get where he wants us to be. And we do have great help. We have all the help we need from a Heavenly Father who loves us. He gave his son to die on the cross for us. His blood is always available to deal with our sins. Our God is immeasurably rich in grace. He gives us his spirit who dwells in us and transforms us from one degree of glory to the next and to the likeness of Christ. He gives us his word, the Bible, which shows us the kind of people he wants us to be, which shows us how to grow into that person, and that encourages us to grow into that person. So tonight I want to look at one of those passages that gives us a picture 
the kind of people that God wants us to be. And I hope it will encourage us and challenge us. I don't want it to discourage you. I don't want you to go home thinking I'm a failure because none of us are, not in God's eyes, um, but that it will encourage us. And as faithful Christians, we're already on our way, and God can help us even further. So I want to share some devotional thoughts with you tonight from Psalm 15. The psalm begins with a question. The psalmist wants to know what qualifications he has to have to dwell in God's tent or sanctuary, to live on his holy hill. Some students of Psalm 15 take this first verse to have a reference to a worship setting. They suggest that faithful Israelites have come to the tabernacle or more likely to the temple to worship God. They stand outside the gates waiting to be admitted to the courtyards. When the Levites or priests come to admit the worshipers, the worshipers ask, who may come in to worship God? Who can walk the sacred precincts of the temple, his holy place? Who can come into God's presence to worship him? So the next section of the psalm, verses 2 through the first part of 5, is spoken by the priest who answers the question. Who is it that can dwell in God's tent? Who can live on his holy hill? And the final line of the psalm pronounces a blessing on such people. Well, that description of the psalm and its use is certainly possible. Its setting very well may have originated in approaching worship as as I've described it. But there is another way to look at the psalm, and it takes note of how very, very much Psalm 15 sounds like Proverbs or sounds like Ecclesiastes, or sections of Job. And maybe in some ways it even sounds a little bit like the book of James. It sounds a lot like those kinds of writings that we find in the Bible called wisdom writing. Wisdom writing is not philosophy, but practical instruction for the way God's people should live their day-to-day lives. It's practical instruction in in day-to-day godliness and day-to-day righteousness. So the opening verse is not asking what are the requirements of those who want to come and worship God, but rather in the images of sojourning or dwelling or living, the question is being asked, who may enjoy fellowship with God? Who may enjoy an ongoing relationship with God? I think the second way of looking at the psalm is helpful and perhaps has more to commend it than the first. But there is one note sounded in the first verse that we need to have in mind as we read the rest of the psalm. The very first verb in verse 1 literally means sojourn or be a resident alien. How can a foreigner dwell in God's holy hill, his temple? How can we live there? And of course the answer to that is that no one can deserve to live there. No one has a right to live there. No one deserves a close relationship with God. If someone can come before God to worship him or enter a relationship with him, it is by God's gracious invitation. The first line of Psalm 5 and verse 7 strikes the same note when it says, but I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. Or another way of reading that, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. God's steadfast love, his mercy, opens the door for us 
into our relationship with Him. Which I think sounds a great deal like the teaching of the New Testament. It brings to mind Hebrews 10, 19-25, which teaches us that Jesus opened the way for us to come before God's throne in the holy place and encourages us to take it. So, what must a person be like to have a living relationship with God by His grace? What are the features of such a life? Well, the picture that David sketches has ten features. Verses 2 through the first part of 5. They're evenly divided. There are five positive things that are typical of such a life and five negative things that are not to be part of such a life. There is to be active goodness in such a life in the absence of evil, as one writer put it. First, the one who may sojourn in God's tent, who may live on his holy hill, who may remain in God's presence for a moment, a night, or a lifetime, as another writer expressed it, is the person whose walk is blameless. Even in the New Testament, a person's walk is a figure for his or her life. So the first requirement is to have a life that is blameless. But what does it mean to have a life that is blameless? If the character of a person who enjoys an ongoing relationship with God must be perfect or sinless, then we don't need to go any farther with this psalm because that would mean that no one could have this relationship. Everyone falls short of the glory of God, according to Paul in Romans 3. But David isn't talking about sinless perfection, but rather he is saying that a person's life must be free from evil. A life that is blameless is a complete life, a complete life being one that is oriented to God, lives lived in dependence on God, lived for God, lived always looking to God. A blameless life is not a sinless life, but one in which a person walks in the light as God is in the light. There is a deep dedication to God in such a life that continues even when a person stumbles, even when they fall. Noah, Abraham, and David are all said in the Bible to be blameless. But we know their lives, and we know that not one of them was sinlessly perfect. But their lives were singularly dedicated to God, and they lived free of evil. The second feature of such a life is that the person does what is right or righteous. There is a commitment in their life to live in obedience to God to consciously choose to do what is right before the Lord. As God is righteous, those who would live with him must also be righteous. Third, this person will also be blameless in his or her speech. They speak truth not only with their lips, but with their heart. They are the opposite of the people Isaiah and Jesus describe when he speaks of those who draw near to God with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. What the one who enjoys a relationship with God says with his or her mouth is what is in their hearts as well. Which brings us to a fourth feature, and that is a person who sojourns in God's tent, who lives on his holy hill, does not slander with his tongue. A person who enjoys fellowship with God, who enjoys a relationship with God, does not tell lies, but tells the truth. They do not use their tongues to injure or to oppress. They don't spread gossip and they don't speak ill of others. 
Fifth, the person who enjoys fellowship with God does his neighbor no wrong or no evil. And that parallels the first line, he who walks blamelessly. David is envisioning the situation in which they live among their neighbors without cheating them or stealing from them or injuring them in some way or taking advantage of them in some way. They don't do bad things to others, but instead are the kind of people, the kind of neighbors who are always there to help each other. And their neighbors appreciate them and trust them. Six, the one who may dwell in God's sanctuary on his holy hill, be in a relationship with him, is one who casts no slurs on other people. He or she speaks no reproach against a friend. They don't tell lies. They don't taunt. They don't provoke other people with their speech. They don't deal in insults and say things to put another person in a bad light. They don't ask the question, are you still beating your wife? They don't make those kinds of statements is what David is saying. People who have this relationship with God share in his values. The seventh characteristic is that they despise the vile man. A vile man is somebody who is a reprobate. A person whose chosen lifestyle is always for what is bad, for what breaks the law, for what causes harm to someone else that runs to evil. The word is vile is used elsewhere in the Old Testament for those that have been reproved or rejected by God. So those who dwell in God's sanctuary or live on his holy hill will oppose those that oppose God. The opposite of that, number eight, is that the person who has fellowship with God honors those who fear God. They have respect and appreciation for people who reverence God in their speech and actions. Number seven and number eight together say the person who wants a relationship with God will oppose those who oppose God and will honor those who honor God. There's also a further suggestion in both of these in verse four that those who live in fellowship with God actively avoid the first group and eagerly seek out the second. When we live close to God, we don't want to be with people who are against God. We want to be with people who love him. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 warns that evil companions corrupt good morals. And David is saying in verse 4 that the opposite is also true. So be with people who love God, who love and practice righteousness. Spend your time, make make your company among those who live faithful Christian lives. And the result will be is that your life will be blessed. and, And you will find help in living this life as you walk with the Lord. The ninth quality is again about integrity, but this time it's in terms of keeping promises. The person who lives in fellowship with God may make a promise and then find out later that in keeping that promise, it's going to be more costly than they thought it would be when they made the promise. But because they made the promise, they go ahead and they keep it, even though it will cost them more. They keep their promise. The final part of the picture of someone who lives close to God is the most specific of all. This person avoids both usury and bribery. He does not put money out at interest, and he does not take a bribe against the innocent. It would seem that the person referred to here is a person of some financial means who is financially able to loan money and make use of their money. 
There is nothing wrong with the use of money. That's not what David is saying. But he is saying that the, that the use of money must not be such that people are harmed. The law of Moses forbid charging interest on loans to fellow Israelites. The law of Moses was planned to prevent exploitation and abuse. If an Israelite is in need to the point that they have to seek out a loan, they are likely in some kind of distress, and charging interest would only make that distress worse and take unfair advantage of a fellow Israelite's difficulties. So the characteristic isn't simply about finances, but about the way we treat one another, the way we treat our brothers and sisters, doing good and helping and supporting and caring and respecting and being honest and being fair in our dealings, the opposite of taking advantage or abusing them. Those are the kinds of behaviors that are typical of those who love the Lord. There is a great concern in the law and the prophets about bribery, especially in the situation in which the leadership of a village or town takes bribes and renders decisions to the advantage of the rich over the poor. The person who has fellowship with God loves justice as God loves justice. And so they won't do those kinds of things. They won't take sides with the rich against the poor. They will not accept the bribe against the innocent. I said at the beginning that one way to read the psalm is to understand it as part of the beginning of a worship service in which those who come to worship ask who may worship, who may come before God to worship him, after which the priest would explain who may worship God. The other way to read the psalm is to read it as an explanation of what a person who lives in fellowship with God will be like. What is the character of a person who has a relationship with God? But there is perhaps a third possibility that brings those together. The idea being that worship is not separate from life. It is a part of our life. I'm not saying that all worship, that all life is worship. The Bible doesn't teach that anywhere. But how we live, the kind of people we are from day to day, how we conduct ourselves, how we treat other people prepares us for worship or it disqualifies us for worship. So in verse 2 through 5a, we have a picture of a life that pleases God and is lived in preparation for worship. We also get a picture of what a life looks like that does not please God and is not acceptable. The character and behavior of those who would worship God, the final thought here is their character and behavior will be a mirror, a mirror of the character and behavior of the God that they worship. The psalm concludes with a blessing, with a promise for the person who lives such a life. Look at the very last lines of verse 5. And the promise is to those who live such a life, that they will never be moved, never be shaken. The promise is not to say that there will never be trials or sorrow or difficulty in the life of God's woman or the life of God's man. It is not saying that we will live a life without hardship or a life without loss or a life without suffering. But rather the promised blessing is the security of a life that belongs to God. It is saying that even in the worst situations, in the greatest of life's difficulties, 
God is going to be in our lives. And God will hold on to our lives. That He won't let us be overwhelmed. That He will not let our faith be overthrown. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. The power of God and His presence will secure our lives. His power will be the anchor of our lives, even when the winds blow and the waves climb higher and higher. Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 30 says, The righteous will never be removed, but the wicked will not dwell in the land. The righteous whose life is based in the ways of God are secured against any ultimate undoing by the troubles that buffet life, as another writer put it. So the practical outcome of this promise is important. God is saying the person who lives this way before him will have a solid foundation under their feet. They will have an anchor. They will have a safety line that will not let them go. They will be walking a bridge that cannot collapse. They dwell with him and he will hold them securely in his hand. And since that is the case, since we can depend on that, there is every reason to give ourselves to such a life and not hold anything back. Such a person can give themselves to full obedience, to lavish obedience, even radical obedience and holiness. They can live the life God wants them to live in fullest measure, knowing that no matter how much they spend of themselves, their lives are in their hands, and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So the psalm encourages us to live with God wholeheartedly, in full measure, with full commitment, because God has a hold of us. And as the scriptures say over and over again, God will take care of us. I will never leave you nor forsake you, is his word in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And we can build a life. We can build an eternity on that. So be all that I, be all I can help you to be. Be all that you can be is God's slogan a long time before it was the U.S. armies. May God empower us mightily this week as we strive to become more and more what he wants us to be. May God bless his people this week. Let's finish with a song of encouragement. If someone's in need of prayer tonight, won't you come while we stand and sing?